This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you are going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you, and it won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting and a fully integrated WordPress website. So, if you already have a podcast, or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up, and the first month is on me. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. And now, on to the show. Before we start, I must provide this warning once again. This episode contains very, very explicit details of sexual violence towards very young children, topics involving child sex abuse, images of child sex abuse, graphic sexual content, and violence and cruelty towards animals, and it is not intended for all audiences. It is not suitable for young children, and it is not suitable for work. Listener discretion is advised. Also, This is the third part of a series. If you haven't listened to the first and second parts, episodes 45 and 46, you should stop this now and go back and listen to those first, then come back and listen to this one. Otherwise, you might be a little bit lost. In part one, we talked about how the allegations of ritualistic satanic child sex abuse and animal sacrifice were brought down upon the McMartin Preschool in the community of Manhattan Beach, California in the summer of 1983. We talked about the allegations of one troubled mother and how those laid the foundation for a mass hysteria, often referred to as satanic panic, that swept the community and the country. In part two, we went over some of the key testimony in the case from the prosecution witnesses, including the testimony of two children who were allegedly abused at the preschool, Today, we are going to try to close this out. We will go over some of the testimony of key defense witnesses. We will get to the outcome of the case. We will talk about the archaeological digs for tunnels under the school and what was found. And we will finally get to the conclusion of this very long story. So when we left off last... We got finished talking about that mess of a jailhouse informant that the prosecution put on the stand, claiming that Ray Bucky admitted to acts of child sexual abuse, hiding pornographic material in South Dakota and in Denmark, and using harming animals as a threat to silence children, as well as being a part of a cult. How convenient Ray admitted to those exact things the prosecution had exactly zero proof of Ray having been a part of, right? Well, now, it was the defense's turn to make the case for their client's innocence. By the way, in February of 1989, 
Ray Bucky's friends had raised $1.5 million in bail money, the amount to set him free after five years of imprisonment. His mother had spent two years in jail before being released on $459,000 bail on January 3, 1986. The defense brought their own expert, a psychiatrist named Dr. Michael Maloney, a professor of psychiatry at USC. He would take the stand to dismantle and discredit Key McFarlane and her interview techniques. Let's take a look at a portion of his testimony. In direct examination by defense attorney Dean Getz, he was asked, Question, Doctor, do you recall that your first function when you were appointed to assist the defense was to start looking at those tapes? Is that correct? Answer, yes. Question, when you started looking at the tapes initially, did you come to any conclusion with respect to the interview techniques utilized by Children's Institute International? Answer, yes. I came to several after watching perhaps five or six of the tapes in their entirety. One conclusion was that the interviews were clearly led by the interviewer rather than focused on the child or the interviewee. And the other was that the vast amount of verbiage or words said were said by the interviewer, not by the children. Another observation was that these children indeed could talk and did seem quite willing to talk at the onset of the interview and there did not appear to be any need for that kind of approach. In fact, that kind of approach would be counterproductive in the sense that the interviewers were saying too much and providing too much information. This is what I would refer to as stage setting. Question. Were those your only conclusions? Answer. There were many more. Those were the primary the first ideas that I had, the first conclusions that I came to, yes. Question. Was it your conclusion that the number of words used by the interviewer were too many? Answer. Yes, definitely. I'm really talking about the ratio of words between the interviewer and the interviewee, the child. Given the premise that the goal of this kind of interview is to get information from a child, to learn about their experiences, their memories, what has been done with them, then we want to hear the child talk. And if the child is able to talk and is willing to talk, the interviewer's job is to facilitate that and get them to talk. Question. Doctor, would it be fair to say that you are going to find children who are too scared to talk, so the interviewer has to talk more? Answer. These were verbal kids. They seemed relaxed. They were talking. So there did not appear to be any basis for taking over the interview. Question. So the interviewer spoke more. What's wrong with that? Answer. There are many things. One is that you are presenting a template or a design for what's going to happen. You're communicating to the child. I'm going to talk. I'm going to ask questions. Your job is to sit back and follow my lead. Question. Why is that wrong? Answer. Because you avoid being able to learn from the child in the child's own language 
what their experience is, how they organize their own history and their own memories. Question, why is that bad? Answer, because your task is to really find out that information. What is the child saying? What does the child remember? The more you use an interviewer to affect that or provide them with information, that could contaminate them. The less you can rely on anything that you get out of them. These interviews did not flow in the direction of the child. In other words, a typical child evaluation interview, you let the child talk and you follow their lead. You keep them speaking. In these interviews, the kids all were machined through the exact same process. Towards the end of that process, they were being asked very direct and almost coercive questions about sexual behavior. At those times, some of the children became fairly nonverbal and were simply pointing and did so in a somewhat passive way and sometimes even in a questioning way. Question. Did you form any opinion as to whether these children were such that numerous questions by the interviewer were inappropriate? Answer, in all cases, yes. I was saying previously, one of the first observations I made was that the interviewers were doing the vast majority of the verbal output. And there are reasons why that could be very problematic in an evaluation interview. Question. Without knowing anything about the children, would you be able to come to any conclusion based on the numbers alone as to whether or not the interview techniques were proper? Answer, I would have to integrate one premise, which I've already measured, that the children were willing to talk. And they did talk. Question, can you tell us what else you did with respect to your analysis of the interview techniques of the Children Institute tapes? Answer, the next step I took was to categorize the various aspects of these interviews and classify the types of behavior that was occurring, the type of interchange between the interviewer and the child. Question, can you tell us how you went about that? Answer, several different ways. My first impression was when I watched the first tapes was that these were done in some systematic way. These were not interviews that followed the lead of the child. I watched probably 40 or 50 tapes of different children and developed what I referred to as a script. And what I was trying to do in reviewing these tapes was to isolate out certain kinds of activities, behaviors, and statements made by the examiners to all or most of the children. Question. Why do you call it a script? Answer. The reason I call it a script is that in interviewing children, the focus is on a child. The opposite of following the child is following some kind of predetermined program. I use the word script for that, to refer to that program, but I also use the word script because even word usage by the various examiners with the various children was very close. It was as if they were reading from a script. Question. Can you tell us, doctor, what's wrong with the script? Answer. The very concept of using a program or a script in an interview with a child is wrong in the sense that it is putting in 
the interview situation material from the interviewer rather than obtaining spontaneous information from the child. The more that's done, the less you will be able to conclude about the child's behavior and statements. Question. But doesn't that depend on, doctor, the particular child at hand? Answer. It certainly depends on the particular child. Generally, the same script was used for all the children. That simply underscores that it was programmed that way. It was planned that way. Question. Is there something wrong with using the same methodology or script with children throughout that age range? Answer. There is something basically and inherently wrong with using a script in any type of evaluation interview. Question. What's wrong with it? Why is it wrong? Answer. There are several things. First is that there does not appear to have been any consideration from the cognitive development of the child. Second. There is no consideration of the relative brightness of the child or the relative fluency of the children or the sex of the children. They are all being considered, at least by implication, as a homogeneous mass that you must treat the same way. Question. Doctor, do you believe you have the ability, from looking at the Children's Institute tapes, to have come to a conclusion of the cognitive development level of any given child? Answer. Other than in a very general sense, without a complete evaluation of the child, it's very difficult to say. We don't have enough data in terms of their own responses on those tapes to make that kind of conclusion. Question. Would it be improper, in your opinion, to conduct an interview of a child for a child's sexual abuse without doing some kind of analysis as to the cognitive development of the child? Answer. I believe it generally would be the cognitive evaluation that provides you the additional data to assess what a child is saying. The bottom line of all this is, the child is saying something. How do we know why they're saying it? Is it their own experience, or did it occur in some other way? Question. In your viewing of the videotapes in this case, did you observe any testing of a child to ascertain cognitive development levels? Answer, not to determine cognitive level. There was some testing to see if they knew the names of certain body parts, but it wasn't cognitive. Question, can you tell us what particular things that you observed that were repeated from child to child that led you to believe that there was a script being utilized? Answer, in almost all cases, the interview started with drawing a picture that was typically outlined by the interviewer. After that, there was a procedure where they went into naming body parts, the specific focus being on the sexual body parts. There was then an introduction of so-called anatomically correct dolls, with the focus again on the sexual body parts of the dolls. There was an introduction of pictures of students and teachers from the school, where persons were identified by the examiner and by the child with specific focus on certain teachers in the school, and sometimes the child himself. There was an introduction of puppets as a method of presenting information. There was an introduction of the nature of these dolls, that they were dolls that you could not find in a store. There was an introduction to variously referred to yucky, sneaky, or tricky games, 
There was an introduction of Ray Bucky as being a bad person who was surveilled by police. There was an introduction of ejaculation in terms of Ray Bucky and what that might look like, taste like, and so forth. Those items were in almost every case here, and in many others as well. I would also like to add, however, in a number of these tapes there was something else going on. You didn't see a picture of a child walking in and the examiner walking in and sitting down. They were already in the process, so something could have happened before, and I don't know what. But when they were sitting down at this phase, they were drawing a picture of the person, frequently outlined by the examiner. Question. Is there something wrong with what occurred in that type of interaction? Answer. The first thing that I would suggest that is wrong with that is that there is a subtle communication, sometimes not so subtle. And what is going to happen between these two people is going to be controlled by the interviewer. And what you want is information that is controlled and generated by the interviewee, the child. Question. How is that being communicated by this drawing? Answer. It's pretty straightforward in the sense that if I want you to draw something and I want you to look at it and help me with it, the examiner is taking over the behavior. Question. Anything else that appeared improper about that kind of activity? Answer. Drawing that picture is a stage-setting behavior for identifying sexual parts. Question. You said stage-setting behavior. What does that mean? Answer. It simply means that it provides certain kinds of information, a certain kind of activity from which information will be based or evolved from. Question. What information does that drawing of a picture provide to the child? Answer. It goes into the next part of where they say, what are these? And if you call them that, they will often say, well, what is this? And they will have to mark up the middle of the torso, usually identified as belly buttons. And then they will have two marks up, usually identified as breasts. And then they will identify private parts. They also do identify hair, fingers, and so forth. But very soon on, in one case, for example, it was four minutes into the interview, the child was saying private parts, and what's another name for that? Vagina or weenie or whatever. That was introduced much too soon in the interview. Question. You talked about naming body parts as something that gradually evolves from the situation. Can you tell us what's wrong with naming body parts? Answer. In isolation, nothing. The primary problem is that the end result of identifying body parts is to identify the sexual body parts. In almost all cases, that's where it ends. At that point of the interview, the children have typically said zero about their own sexual experiences, but they have been directed to talk about genitalia and so-called other private parts. Again, in doing that, you run the risk of stage setting. It also presents data that the child may not know. There are a lot of children that have not been able to say even what the difference between a boy and a girl is. Question. Wouldn't naming body parts be an appropriate activity if you were simply trying to determine the terminology used by the children? Would it be appropriate at that point? Answer. No. Because it's setting the stage that we're talking about sexual matters. Once you do that, you're never going to know what they know before you got to that point. Question. 
Couldn't that kind of activity be justified by virtue of the interviewer wanting to use the same terms as the child used? Answer, you could argue that. But what I'm saying is you are presenting that as a topic when the child never spontaneously brought it up. Question, what else was there that you observed about scripting that occurred in this particular case? Answer, the next one is the introduction of the dolls. We are talking about dolls that are usually referred to as sexually anatomically correct dolls or sack dolls. Question. Is it your opinion that there is something improper about the introduction of those anatomically correct dolls? Answer. Yes. Question. Was it your opinion that the use of the dolls in these nine cases was improper? Answer. Yes. They were very systematically introduced in a fashion that suggested that they were silly and this was funny. They refer to the breasts as cupcakes. In some of the later interviews, after the dolls had been used a lot, they got parts all over. The kids wrote on them, they beat them up, and they had to repair them. There was definite levity in that, mismatched or matched, with very serious content material for children at this age. Obvious sex characteristics. Sexual education for children is very serious. They are not concerned about it. It's not funny to them. In many cases, the way that it was presented to them was in a derogatory way, a negative way. I can't imagine a rationale for doing that. You might say it makes them more at ease, but it might not make them see it as a serious issue. Secondly. The dolls are almost always presented clothed and the children are allowed to experiment with them at their own rate, at their own speed. In this case, they're dumped out of bags and said, these are funny dolls. You can't find them in a store. They're really silly. And then they strip them and show them. You asked initially what's wrong? We're really forcing the focus on sex in these interviews. Question. You talked about reinforcement, doctor. When you say reinforcement, what do you mean? Answer, I could give it to you in an example. If a child were to have identified a private part of the drawing, the dolls were then introduced and they say, what was this part again? And the child says, vagina. And they say, great, you're smart. You're a really smart kid. That's the reinforcement. Question. Is there anything wrong with the re-identifying of body parts on the anatomically correct dolls? Answer, what it does is it gets these children further away from their own spontaneous remarks about sex. You are presenting it to them in drawing form, and then you're presenting it to them in doll form. It's almost as if you want them to make sure that they're going to focus on those areas. If you're interested in getting spontaneous information, it's obvious to me that this would be wrong. Question. Can't the use of dolls be justified in terms of trying to desensitize the child? Answer. You could say that, sure, but you are presenting them with sexual material and you're telling them that this is a big deal. Question. Is there a danger in using these dolls that might result in leading the child to react in terms of fantasy rather than actual events? Answer, there is a danger, yes.
question. You mentioned that the focus in on the body parts was done a second time when the anatomically correct dolls were introduced. In your opinion, is there any justification for doing that a second time, that is, naming the same body part that the child picked on the picture and hooking it into the body part? Answer, to me, there's not a justification. Question, can you tell us what other aspects of these interviews constituted a script? Answer, yes. Another one related to the dolls is a scenario wherein the presentation of these dolls was to, quote, help us figure it out. Now, that word, it, has several different references, but it is usually vague. And that kind of specific statement was used with most of the children. Question, what's wrong with that? Answer, many things. The first one is the way that it was presented. There is an implication, if not a statement, that there is something wrong. At this point, from the children, we don't know if there's anything wrong or not. But by saying, quote, these dolls help us figure out some of these things, unquote, presents the idea that there is something wrong that needs to be figured out. So that's a stage-setting behavior as well. There's ground laid that we're going to have to work on something here. In some cases, there's something more specific about that, saying that negative things happened. There are usually words like yucky used very frequently in these statements. Secondly, there is a game-playing quality to all of this. Before the dolls were being used to identify body parts to look at, this time we're using the dolls as an intermediary. The dolls will help us figure this out. This is where you could really get into the risk of a fantasy problem. You are removing responsibility from the child. You're not saying to the child, I want you to only tell me what you know. You're saying, we can use the dolls. They will help us. Question. Generally speaking, when the interviewer using these dolls to help us figure it out, is the doll clothed or unclothed? Answer. I believe they're usually unclothed at this point. This comes after other parts of the script, which brings up a focus again or a contamination about sex. Question. Is it your opinion that, at that point in time, having pulled the clothes off the anatomical doll and making references to dolls helping us figure it out, were you able to render an opinion as to whether or not the child would understand that that's what this was about? Answer. There's no way to know exactly, but I think there's a very high probability that sex has been emphasized so much prior to that that now we're presenting a problem that needs to be figured out. That would be one of the high probability associations. Figuring means sex. Question. Are there other areas and portions of the script that you have identified? Answer. Yes. Another portion of the script would be the presentation of photos of either classes or teachers or students at McMartin Preschool. Question. What is improper about that? Answer. The risk that this technique runs and the potential harm it causes is that it could be looked at as a teaching and rehearsal strategy 
rather than a strategy wherein the interviewer independently determines what a child remembers. Question. You said teaching and rehearsal strategy. Could you tell us what you mean by that phrase? Answer. What usually is involved when this is done is photos are pulled out regarding the child. Usually. In the class that the child was in, the photos of the school, and the technique is to say, well, let's look at this. Do you remember some of these people? Now, if the child spontaneously says, yes, that is so-and-so, that is so-and-so, then they recall them. I don't see much of that going on here. There are some cases, however, where the child said that they didn't remember who they were. Sometimes they would misidentify people, and then they were corrected in that regard. The risk that you run here is that you're not getting a spontaneous recall from the child. The role of this kind of interview is to try to obtain spontaneous information from the children. Once a child identifies someone verbally in a spontaneous way, I think it might be a good procedure to go back and say, is this who we're talking about? And if you do it the other way around, then there's a contamination or a potential for contamination that you can't rectify. Question. How is it contamination? Answer. Some of the other parts of the script say, things happened at the school, or yucky things happened at the school. There is an implication that some people might have done these things. The child might not even remember a given person. Question. Anything else about using class photos that appears to be inappropriate to you? Answer. In some cases, the key figure was simply pointed out to the child. Some of the children didn't even remember who they were. Question. Are there other areas you identified as scripted? Answer. Yes, which I've titled, quote, Mention of Children Who Have Attended Children's Institute International, unquote. Children who have been evaluated there before. And if I can give you some examples, what we're talking about here are statements wherein the interviewer says, quote, all these kids have been here before, unquote. Question, what's wrong with that? Answer, that, in isolation, I would say that there is nothing specifically wrong, other than that there seems to be a cumulative effect that something of a major nature went on. There is also a social pressure and a coercion in that they don't just say that all these kids have been here. They tend to say that all these kids have been here and they've told us all of these yucky things. There's another part of the script and it's integrated with this part of the script. Question. You say social pressure. What do you mean by that? Answer. Social pressure in the sense that these children are told that hundreds, every child in this picture, so they're presenting this child in contrast to all the other children. Question. You talked about an element of coercion in this kind of technique. How is it coercive? Answer. They are saying, quote, all of your classmates have told us these secrets, unquote. There becomes an expectation that the child should do the same. Question. What danger could that have on the propriety of the interview? Answer. It does present that expectation and that there is data available to indicate that adults and kids respond to social pressure. Question. Could that be justified on the theory of an attempt to put the child at ease? 
Answer, it could be if the child manifested anxiety. But if you do it before that, there's no way to get back to spontaneity. You already laid out that part. Question, in viewing the nine videotapes in question here, did you observe any kind of anxiety reaction that preceded these kinds of words? Quote, all the kids have told us about the yucky secrets, unquote. Answer, I did not see what I would operationally define as anxiety. Question, anything else about mentioning that other children had already been to Children's Institute that appeared improper? Answer, in some of the cases, there's a specific reference. It isn't just that children have already been here. There's an indication that we already know what happened. It's presenting that as fact, as an authority. And the authority is based not only on the interviewer, but on all the other children as well. Question, what effect could that have on the child? Answer, I would see it as another form of pressure, another attempt of forcing conformity. It decreases spontaneity. Question, any other aspects of the script that you've isolated or identified? Answer, yes, there is a part that presents the puppets as a vehicle for telling secrets. You know we have here these puppets, and they really help us. The kids don't even have to be the ones to do it. Question, what's wrong with that? Answer, well, from purely a clinical point of view, it's an inappropriate start-off technique. It tends to decrease personal responsibility. The puppets tell us, so the kids don't have to say anything. Question. Do you have a recollection of the interview between Kay McFarlane and this female child whose name was redacted? Answer. Yes, I do. Question. Can you tell us in general how you would characterize that interview? Answer. It was a very long interview. A great deal of discussion by the examiner. The girl says very little, maybe two or three words. Question. Any other areas of the script that you noted? Answer. Yes, I do. Question. Can you tell us in general how you would characterize that interview? Answer. It was a very long interview. A great deal of discussion by the examiner. The girl says very little, two or three words. Question. Any other areas of the script that you noted? Answer, yes. The next one I have is titled, quote, kids have been scared, unquote. It's a statement that ties in with the mention of the kids to Children's Institute, but it adds information that either the kids have been scared to talk or the kids simply have been scared. Question, the interviewer provides the information. What's wrong with that? Answer, it is what I would describe again as stage setting. If you are trying to obtain information from a child, once you've said that, it's difficult to determine whether the child himself or herself has been scared or is simply responding to that kind of statement. Question. If a child has not been threatened, what would or could be the potential effect on the child? Answer. It presents information that something might have occurred that people were scared about, telling them, listen, We've seen about a hundred kids and they've all been scared. Question. Did you, in your view of the tapes, know any behavior that would indicate anxiousness on the part of the children? Answer. I don't recall any. Question. 
What about the response of the interviewer when the child points to a particular picture? Answer, the response is reinforcing since the interviewer exclaims, yeah, that's what a whole lot of kids told us. Question, so what if it reinforces the answer? What's wrong with that? Answer, well, the next time you get into another area and you say, can you point? There will be a higher probability that they'll point to Ray. Question, what about the next area? Answer, the next area is titled the secret machine. Question, can you tell us what that area involves? Answer, it is an instruction to the children that if they have a secret, they can say it into the microphone and tell them that the secret will go down into the wire and into the box and it will be gone forever. First, it can be confusing. I don't know if there is any clarity as to what that word really means to children. If these children were molested, if they were traumatized, it's a misrepresentation. It would not just go away. Question. And would you go into the next area of the script? Answer. There's a part that I've titled Older Kids slash Younger Kids. Question. Would you tell us what that involves, please? Answer. There is a fairly systematic statement given to the children that the older kids are very helpful because they were able to give a report the younger children can't give. They are better detectives. They are smarter. They need to help out the younger kids. Question, and what is wrong with that approach? Answer, it's an inducement to the children to talk. It presents some external pressure, and in some cases, the pressure is relatively severe. You run the risk of telling the children that if they don't say something, then they're not smart. They are not like the other, older kids, and they are not helping out the younger children. All of that could be subsumed under the implication of stage setting. This is what everybody else did. Who is not bright? Who is not older? Who is helping? Question. Could this kind of pressure change the behavior of children in terms of responding correctly? Answer. Yes, it could. Question, what is the next area of the script that you've isolated? Answer, it's an area called the secret policeman. Question, generally, what does that involve? Answer, it involves a fairly specific description that Ray Bucky is being surveilled. It identifies him as a bad person. Question, how does it do that? Answer, some of the things were quite direct in that area. Things like, he needs to be watched, he needs to be put in jail. It identifies him as a bad person who needs watching, and there's no other explanation. Question, but the mere fact that that kind of communication is communicated to the child, can you say, thereby, that it might have an effect on the child's behavior or responses? Answer, certainly. If the child believes that something happened at the school, that hundreds of kids have said it was a yucky thing, they've been presented with issues of sex, and now Ray is introduced as a person who needs police surveillance. I don't think it takes a great leap to identify him as a person who was involved in all of those things, and he's already been placed on the stage. Question. The next area, please. Answer. The naming of the dolls. It deals with the interaction between the interviewer and the child where they are looking at these dolls. 
I believe in almost all cases the dolls were unclothed. And they are saying who played the game and they want to identify these dolls as various players. The players have been identified by the pictures. That's generally part of the script. Question. What is wrong with that? Answer. They now take these dolls and use them as a personification of these people. In almost all of these cases that we have here, Peggy is identified as the fattest one. They use that kind of terminology, and the kids call her Miss Piggy. So the dolls are derogatory. Then they use the introduction of these people as derogatory as well. Question. And what is your next area of staging, doctor? Answer. This is the area of staging I call names introduced. This is a general category that involves the examiner presenting to the child some idea that certain games were played at the school. The games are typically referred to as sneaky or tricky or naked, and it presents the child with that information. They are essentially telling them that this is what happened. If you have a child who did not have that experience, the impact may be that within the context of the interview, the child may say, yes, that is something that happened. It's an information-giving technique. Question. And the final category? Answer. The final category I have is titled Stuff Out of Ray's Penis. It involves a series of quite direct questions about Ray ejaculating, and certainly the implication is made to the kids of oral copulation. I do not recall any child saying that Ray ejaculated before this was brought up by the interviewer. The children simply did not say anything about it. The second thing about it to me was the most ridiculous set of questions of the whole interview because they start off and they use, with the majority of the children, the same terms. Quote, does it taste like candy? Did it taste like strawberries? Did it taste like pizza? Did it taste like chocolate? This has already been identified with the penis area of the Ray doll. Children of that age think of that area of excretion. Question. If you would take these scripts that you have isolated or identified here, how would you characterize them in terms of the propriety of the interview? Answer. With that many things wrong, with that significant amount of negative influence, I would say that these were very inappropriate interviews for this purpose. Question. If we were to take the various aspects of this script that you have isolated and put those together, is there a joint conclusion that you can reach in terms of the propriety of the interviews? Answer. I think you run the risk very strongly in this case of getting the kids to acquiesce in saying things or to point to things that we are all not sure of at all. There is a great deal of pressure on them to do that. In evaluation for sexual abuse, this would be an inappropriate way to proceed for all of the reasons that I have given. In summary, it presents information to the children that we do not know if they had or did not have before. It tells them that things happened at the school. It gives the general nature of the things. It presents the players in the situation and essentially presents all the pieces to a puzzle. And there is a very strong motivation for the children to solve this puzzle. The motivation comes out of things said to them like, are you smart or dumb? Are you a good detective? Are you going to please your mother and father? And then finally, it provides a vehicle for a solution, which are these puppets and these dolls. 
So what you are doing is presenting a situation that you could take with any child and not know why you got the results you got out of it, no matter what their experience was before that. Question, and is your view that these nine children interviews are worse than useless? To this question, the prosecution objected and the judge sustained. Question, would it be fair to say, doctor, that the only end result of these interviews is that they cannot be relied upon because of the techniques utilized? The prosecution objected again and the judge sustained. Question, are there or could there be factors occurring to a child before a Children's Institute interview that might affect the child's response? both before the interview and later? Answer, sure. Question, hypothetically, what factors might affect a child's report to Children's Institute? Answer, any interaction with other persons that dealt with the same type of material, multiple interviews or any interviews. Now it's presented to them by another person, siblings, family members, police officers, any information. Question, if you could, hypothetically again, assume that the child loves and respects his or her parents, and assume that same parent believes that the interviewer is qualified to do a child sexual abuse evaluation, then assume, if you would, that after the Children's Institute interview, the interviewer goes in and tells the parents that his or her child was molested. Could that have an impact on the child's later behavior? The prosecution objected to this question as being speculative and the judge sustained. Question. Dr. Maloney, are there psychological factors that might affect a child's behavior after the Children's Institute interview? Answer. There are many possibilities. Question. Doctor, are you aware of any recognized body of experts in the field of interviewing methodology who espouse the interview techniques that you have isolated in this particular case? Answer, no. Well, dreamers, for me, this doctor's testimony thoroughly picked apart Key McFarlane and confirmed what many of us thought based on what we heard from her in part two of our story, that she's kind of a hack. And to me, what's worse, whatever on earth her intentions were, it feels like she caused much more harm than good in what she put those hundreds and hundreds of children through. I honestly don't know how her career survived after this, if it did at all. Next, let's take a look at a bit of testimony from Ray Bucky's dad, Peggy's husband, Chuck, with a focus on Ray going to work at the preschool. This is a portion of his cross-examination by Prosecutor Roger Gunson. Question. Before Raymond Bucky started working at the preschool, did Mrs. Bucky talk to you about whether or not it would be appropriate for him to work at the preschool? Answer. Yes. Question. In that conversation, did you talk to Ray Bucky viewing those Playboy and Penthouse magazines in his possession? Answer. It was not discussed. Question. Did you talk with Mrs. Bucky about Raymond Bucky looking at these explicit materials and working at the preschool? Answer. No. Question. Did you discuss with Mrs. Bucky the appropriateness of Raymond Bucky working at the preschool without wearing underpants? Answer. 
it was discussed. Question. And did that conversation take place before Raymond Bucky was arrested? Answer. Yes. Question. And did you decide that it was okay for Raymond Bucky to not wear underwear? Answer. Considering the times, I did not approve, but I did not disapprove. Question. And did you discuss your not approving with Mrs. Bucky? Answer. Yes. Question. Did Mrs. Bucky tell you about Raymond Bucky exposing himself at the preschool? Answer. She never told me that. Question. Did Mrs. Bucky tell you about Raymond Bucky exposing himself at the soccer team practice? Answer. When you say, quote, exposing himself, unquote, I think you have the wrong connotation. The answer to that would be no. Question. Is there some understanding that you have with Raymond Bucky that his genitals were viewed by the girls on the soccer team? Answer. Never. Question. Did you hear any other complaints by other persons that Raymond's Bucky's genitals were observed? Answer. No. Question. Was there a complaint about someone seeing Raymond Bucky's genitals in a private setting? Answer. I never heard it. No. Question. Did anyone complain to you about anything related to that? Answer. No. Question. Did you have a feeling that he should not be at the school without underwear? Answer. No, I did not have that feeling. Question. Did you disapprove of him being at the school without underwear? Answer. No. Here's a portion of a re-examination conducted by Ray's attorney. Question. Mr. Bucky, did you ever talk to Raymond about why he wasn't wearing underwear? Answer, yes. Question, and after you talked to Ray about why he wasn't wearing underwear, did you instruct him that he probably should wear underwear? Answer, no, I did not. Question, how was it that you came to determine that your son wasn't wearing underwear? Answer, I think it became a topic of conversation that he and many of his friends did not, and he sided with his friends. The prosecutor came back for a re-cross-examination. As you can see, dreamers, the issue of Ray Bucky not wearing underwear has become a focal point, and it's likely due to the fact that it may seem unconventional, and it's pretty much the only solid evidence they have so far against Ray. Question. Mr. Bucky, did you have any concern about Raymond Bucky being in the preschool not wearing underwear? Answer. No. Question. Did you have a concern that the children may see his genitals? Answer. No. Question. Did you have a concern that the children were sitting on Raymond Bucky's lap while he did not have underwear on? Answer. It was not my concern. Question. Did you tell Mrs. Bucky that you disapprove of Raymond Bucky not wearing underwear while the children were sitting on his lap? Answer. I never made that comment. Question. Did you have a concern that preschoolers at McMartin would see Raymond Bucky's genitals because his shorts were shorter than his legs? Answer. Never entered my mind. Question. Did you have a concern that children would be moving in front of Raymond Bucky and they would see his genitals? Answer. 
Answer, it never entered my mind. Question, in conversation, did you explore the possible effect upon the children if they were to see the genitals of Raymond Bucky? Answer, no. Question, did Raymond Bucky tell you the reasons why he did not wear underwear? Answer, yes. Question, and was one of those reasons for comfort? Answer, the word was constricting, so comfort would be the answer, yes. Question, so Raymond Bucky told you that he wanted to be able to wear loose-fitting clothing? Answer, yes. Question, did you at any time go into the bedroom and see him lying without his clothes on? Answer, never. Question, did you ever see him lying on the bed with pornographic pictures surrounding him? Answer, no. Okay, you know what, dreamers? What do we make of Ray Bucky's penchant for not wanting to wear underwear? I mean, I guess if he were to wear shorts, and shorts for men in the 70s and 80s, you know, were kind of short. It'd be kind of weird, or no. Well, it's a far cry from the things that he's accused of. Quite a leap to go from not wanting to be uncomfortable in underwear to molesting hundreds of children thousands of times. And as far as being in possession of Playboy and Penthouse magazines, that's a non-issue. If anything, all that proves is Ray has a thing for pictures of scantily clad or nude or semi-nude photographs of grown women, which seems relatively normal for a young man. So, let's move on from Ray's underwear. For now, anyway. Peggy McMartin Bucky, at the time 62 years old, took the stand in her own defense. Let's take a look at a portion of some of her testimony. Here first is a part of her direct examination conducted by her attorney, Dean Gitz. Question. Did you ever molest children? Answer. Never. Question. Did you ever touch them on any part of their bodies for purpose of sexual gratification, either of yourself or of anybody else? Answer. No. Question. Were you ever naked in front of any of these children? Answer, no. Question, did you ever make any of these children get naked? Answer, no. Question, did you ever make any of these children get partially naked? Answer, no. Question, did you ever transport any of these children off the school grounds for purposes of molesting them? Answer, never. Question, did you ever transport any of these children off the school grounds for purposes of permitting other adults to touch them? Answer, no. Question, did you ever transport any of these children off the school grounds for purposes of engaging in satanic acts at a church? Answer, never. Question, did you ever threaten these children in any manner? Answer, no. Question, did you ever see any person molest these children while you were at the preschool? Answer, no. Question, did you see any person, any place in the world molest these children? Answer, no. Question, did you ever see these children naked with any other teacher at the preschool? Answer, no. 
Question. With any other adult at the preschool? Answer. No. Question. Did you ever see anything at the preschool that ever once gave you the slightest suspicion that any of those children were ever being molested in any manner whatsoever? Answer. Never. Question. Are you aware of the complaining witnesses in this case? Answer. Yes. Question. Did you ever see any person molest those children? Answer. Never. Question. Did you ever see those children naked with any other adult? Answer. Never. Question. Did you ever see anything at the school that gave you the slightest suspicion that those children were being molested or mistreated in any manner? Answer. Never. Question. Did you ever conspire or agree with anyone to molest any children at the preschool? Answer. No. Question. Did you ever conspire or agree to permit others to molest any of those children? Answer. No. Question. Any other children at the preschool? Answer. No. Question. Mrs. Bucky, why is it you hired your son, Raymond, as an aide at the preschool? Question. He was my son, and he was interested in working with children, and I felt he had the potential of being a good teacher. Question. Was there a particular teacher that was assigned to be present with Raymond in the afternoon hours? Answer. Yes. It would have been Betty Rader. Question. When did you first become aware that you were a suspect? Answer. I never did find out until I was arrested. Question. When were you arrested? Answer. March 22, 1984. Question. Do you recognize the person in that photograph? And he showed her a picture of a woman. Answer. Yes. Question. Who is that? Answer. Me. Peggy Bucky. Question. Do you know when that photograph was taken? Answer. Yes. Question. When? Answer. When I was arrested. In jail. Question. Do you know who it was who took that photograph? Answer. Yes. One of the deputies. Question. And where was that photograph taken? Answer. At Sybil Brand. Question. And what is Sybil Brand? Answer. Well, it's a jail. And by the way, dreamers, Sybil Brand Institute was a county jail in Los Angeles County for female inmates built in 1963. Because of the damage it sustained in the 1994 Northridge earthquake, it was shut down for good in 1997. It's now used as a filming location for television and movies. And Sybil Brand, she was a philanthropist and an activist whose work focused on improving conditions in jails in Los Angeles for women. Now, let's get on to the portion of the cross-examination conducted by Lyle Rubin. Question. You told the court, as director of the preschool, that you were interested in having your son work at the preschool because he had some interest in working with children and that he had potential to be a good teacher, correct? Answer, yes. Question. What was it at the time that caused you to believe that he had an interest in working with children? Answer. He had a very gentle, loving way with children, what you need when you work with children. 
At this point, the prosecutor asked the judge to strike Peggy's answer as a non-responsive answer, but he allowed it to stand. And you're going to see that Lyle Rubin is going to do this quite often simply because she just doesn't like the answers that she's getting from Peggy. Question. What was it that was communicated to you by your son that explained his having an interest in working with children? And I guess my question is, did he tell you that he had an interest in working with children? Answer, yes. He had done some volunteer work in San Diego. Lyle Rubin again objected to Peggy's answer, asking for it to be stricken on the basis of being non-responsive. This time, the judge sustained. Question. Did your son specifically tell you that he had an interest in working with children? Answer, he enjoyed working with children. Question, and how was it that the subject came up, that your son told you he was interested in working with children? Answer, as I mentioned, he did volunteer work in San Diego. Again, Lyle Rubin moved to strike the answer, which the judge sustained. Question, how was it that the subject came up that your son wanted to work with children? Answer, he was at the school one morning and we were out to lunch and he just told me how he enjoyed working with children and he would like to come and work at our school. Question, were you surprised when your son offered to work at the Pink Martin Preschool? Answer, yes. Question, and why were you surprised? Answer, because he had never been interested before. Question. Did you ask him how it came to be that he was interested in working with children? Answer. Yes. He said that he had volunteered in San Diego and he got a certificate. And again, Lyle Rubin moved his strike and the judge sustained. Question. Mrs. Bucky, did your son tell you that part of his duties was cleaning up? Answer. Yes. He worked out in the yard and did supervising of children. Question. And was this award specifically for this? Answer, I don't remember. Question. And what was it that he said? Answer. He said that he would like to come home and work at the school. Question. Did you ask him about his qualifications? Answer. No. Question. Is there a reason you didn't ask him about his qualifications to work with children? Answer. Yes. Question. And what was that reason? Answer. If you employ someone and you feel they have the potential to be a good teacher, they take certain courses and that's what I told him he would have to do. Question. And from the time your son became employed at the preschool, was he taking courses? Answer. Yes. Question. Do you know where it was he was taking courses? Answer. El Camino College. Some of my parents were in the same classes. Question. Now you've told us that there are requirements essential for working with children. How would you come to define that? Answer. First, you have to care for children. You have to love children. Ray was very gentle. He had a wonderful rapport with children. Question. Now that you have told us that you never saw anything that gave you the slightest suspicion that children were being molested at the preschool, were you aware that your son didn't wear underwear? Isn't that right? Answer, no. Question, and you were aware that his penis was seen, correct? Answer, no. Question, 
and you had the belief that it was okay for Raymond Bucky to be in the preschool and not wear underwear? Answer, I do not remember that. Question, you heard your husband testify that you said that women don't wear bras, so it's no big deal. Do you remember that? Answer, yes. And what did you say? Answer, I see nothing wrong with not wearing underwear. Question, why not? Answer, many of the young men who came to our house did not wear underwear. Kids at the beach do not wear underwear. Lots of them. Question, and did you see their genitals? Answer, I never saw anybody's genitals. Again, Lyle Rubin moved to strike this answer, but this time she was overruled. Mrs. Bucky's answer stood. Question, now Mrs. Bucky, do you recognize that there may be a difference between not wearing underwear at the beach and not wearing underwear at the preschool? Answer, I never gave it a thought. Question, now did you make the statements in the past that women don't wear bras so it's no big deal? Answer, I don't remember that. Question, now with a child sitting on his lap and his not wearing underwear, might that make it easier for a child to see raised genitals? Answer, no. Question, now one of the differences might be that having a child sitting on your son's lap and his not wearing underwear might make it easier for him to get aroused, correct? Answer, no. Question, are you aware that this child, whose name is redacted, grabbed your son's penis, or had you heard that she had grabbed your son's penis? Answer, I certainly did. Question, was it something that you observed? Answer, no. Question, how was it that you heard that? Answer, my son told me. Question, and how was it that your son told you? Answer, I asked my son if anything happened at the school so I could tell the parents. Question, and after asking if anything happened, what were you told? Answer, that the child grabbed him in the genitals through his clothes. Question, and what did your son say? Answer, he told me that he told her that she shouldn't do that. Question, now at the time your son told you about this child grabbing his genitals, did he tell you that she was sitting on his lap? Answer, all I remember is that he told her not to do it again. He did not make a big thing of it to the child. Question. Did you ask your son where it happened? Answer. All I know is he was sitting. Question. Did you ask your son how long she had her hand on his genitals? Answer. She just grabbed him and let go. Question. When you checked that one time, you saw him, he had a heart on, correct? Answer, he certainly did not. Question, would you agree that it is an unusual event when the director of a preschool checks her son for an erection? Answer, I told you I did it one time and only one time. It's such a dumb question. It had to do with his being male. Question, have you ever seen your son with an erection on any other occasion? The defense objected and the judge sustained. Question. Was this child, whose name is redacted, who made the accusation against Ray, was this child lying? Answer. Yes, she was lying. Question. Why would she lie? Answer. 
Why did everybody lie in this case? Question. Do you have a reason to lie in this courtroom? Answer. I don't lie. I'm telling the truth. I've heard the word lie so much in this case. I've learned to say lie like the rest of you. Question. Are you accusing me of lying? Answer. No, I'm not. Question. Is it true, Mrs. Bucky, that as time went on, there were more and more complaints about your son, Raymond Bucky, correct? Answer, no. Question, Mrs. Bucky, when this parent, whose name was redacted, first informed you that she had been notified by the police, did she tell you during the conversation that she was informed as to when the molestation was supposed to have happened? Answer, no. Question, Now, when you talked to Detective Hogue, whether it be the 30th or the 31st of August, 1983, you, in fact, told Detective Hogue that the parent should have come to you first before going to the police, correct? Answer, I don't remember saying that. Question, that is something you believe, isn't it? Answer, no. I think it's up to the parents to make that decision. I've said that I think it would be nice if they would have come to me, but... That was up to the parents to do what they thought was the right thing, not for me to tell them what to do. Question. Now from the 30th or the 31st of August, within the next few days after that, on the 2nd of September, that was when your residence was searched, correct? Answer. Yes. Question. And before the search actually began, you told one of the police officers that you can't believe little kids, they'll lie, correct? Answer, I do not recall saying that. Question, Mrs. Bucky, showing you this document, I would ask you to read the end of the first paragraph. And doesn't that refresh your recollection? Shortly after Detective Hogue arrived at your residence, that you remarked, you can't believe little kids, they all lie? Answer, I don't remember saying that. Question, Mrs. Bucky, If Detective Hogue put that in her police report, would that be untrue? Answer, it certainly would be. She's lied about a lot of things. Dreamers, honestly, all I could picture in my mind is like my grandma up there on the stand answering up to all these questions. I like to think that the prosecutors just have to do their jobs. But still... To have to sit up there and talk about your grown son in that way. What an awful thing to have to go through. These people are fighting for their freedom. And it's coming down to things like underwear and whether or not you've seen your son aroused. Now I want to go over a short portion of Ray Bucky's testimony in the trial. His direct examination was conducted by his attorney, Daniel Davis. Question. When you dropped out of class, did you drop by the preschool? Answer, no. I didn't want my parents knowing that I wasn't attending classes. Question, during that time you were at the McMartin Preschool, did you ever reach an agreement of any kind with other teachers that you would attempt to conceal children being molested at the preschool? Answer, no. Question, you heard a child whose name is redacted Describe your mother as being in her bra at the preschool. Did you ever see anything like that at the preschool? Answer, no. Question, 
From what you know of your mother, is she the type of person who would do this at a preschool? Answer, she wouldn't even do it at home. The prosecution objected and the judge sustained, striking the answer. Question, you have heard suggestions that your mother was naked at the preschool. Is that something you ever saw at the preschool? Answer, no. Question, have you ever been in St. Cross Church? Answer, never in my life. Question, have you ever touched a child to arouse or obtain sexual gratification? Answer, no. Question, have you ever knowingly exposed your penis to a child? Answer, no. Question, did you ever hurt this child whose name was redacted? Answer, no. Question, did you ever molest the child in any way? Answer, no. Question, did you ever sodomize the child? Answer, no. Question, did you ever sodomize anybody? Answer, no. Question, have you ever been a member of any type of network of child molesters or involved in the sale or production of kitty porn? Answer, no. Question, did you ever put your finger in the vaginal opening of a child? Answer, no. Did you ever kill a horse with a baseball bat? Answer, no. Question, were you ever there when this child witness, whose name is redacted, was at the preschool? Answer, no. Question, have you ever been in the men's room at the red carpet car wash? Answer, no. Question, have you ever been inside the women's room of the red carpet car wash? Answer, no. Question, did George Freeman, remember he was the jailhouse informant we talked about at the end of part two, did he ever talk to you about sex? Answer, his sex. He told me about his ex-wives. He told me about women he had had sex with and men that he had had sex with. Okay, now let's take a quick look at the cross-examination of Ray Bucky by Lyle Rubin. Question, did you tell George Freeman that you screwed this child's name who's been reducted in the ass? Answer, no, and I don't use your kind of language, Miss Rubin. Question, did you have sexual intercourse with Barbara? Dreamers, I will explain who Barbara is in a bit. Answer, yes, we did. Question, Mr. Bucky, did you see that portion of the district attorney's report that states that Barbara said that she did not have sexual intercourse with you that night? Answer, yes. Question, would you describe your sexual relationship with Barbara? Answer, in which location? Question, the fantasy motel? Answer, sexual intercourse. Question, is there any reason that Barbara would say that you did not have sexual intercourse with her? Answer, I'm sure she has her reasons. I'd like to hear them. Question, now you're aware of the fact that Barbara told the district attorney's investigator that she tried to seduce you, but that you wouldn't be seduced? Answer, I believe the report says that. I don't know her reasons. Question, did you and Barbara sleep under your pyramid? and dreamers i'll explain that in a bit too answer yes question did barbara get along with your mother answer i don't remember 
Question. Mr. Bucky, isn't it true that your mother told you to get rid of Barbara? Answer. I know she wasn't happy that I had a woman living in my apartment with me. The whole family wasn't too happy about it. Question. Why is that? Answer. It was their morals. I didn't think it was immoral. I was very much in love with Barbara. Question. Mr. Bucky, do you believe that child molesters do not have relationships with adult females? Answer. It makes common sense. If you have a perversion for children, you wouldn't have a desire for adult females. Question. Is that belief based on your experience? Answer. What experience? Question. Having a perverted interest in children and therefore not having an interest in women? Answer. I can't imagine it. It's like mixing apples and oranges. It's like homosexuality. You wouldn't have interest in females. Question. Have you met or heard about individuals who are bisexual? Answer. I've heard of it, but I can't imagine it. Question. Now, isn't it true, Mr. Bucky, that in order to counter a claim that you had a sexual interest in children, you came up and fabricated this account of sexual intercourse with Barbara? Answer. I have no sexual desire for children. Never had. Never will. Okay, so Barbara. She was an older woman that Ray had once had an intimate relationship with. And she came forward and testified about it. By the time she was called to the stand, she was 37 years old. Six years older than Ray. And she was living in Montana, and she was already a grandmother. And she was adamant. Ray Bucky was no child molester. She said that she had lied to the district attorney's investigators back in 1985 when she told them that when she met Ray at a UFO convention in Reno, her efforts to seduce him had failed. She explained that she was trying to protect her reputation because she was about to get married. As a matter of fact, when she was questioned by the DA about Ray, she married her third husband a week later. She had told her fiancé that she knew the family and had spent a Thanksgiving with them, but she did not disclose to him that she had actually had an affair with Ray. She decided to come forward after she had the chance to speak with investigators for the defense. They had expressed genuine concern for her, and she also pointed out that the district attorney's investigators' questioning of her bordered on harassment. And going into a few more details about her relationship with Ray, she said they met at a 1982 convention at a booth where they were selling pyramid power hats. And I don't really know what that is. I'm just going to assume it has something to do with UFOs. I just want to stick to the story. She said after that, they spent a few nights together, although she wasn't able to recall all the details. She did remember the fantasy motel. She said the room had a heart-shaped bathtub with a round bed and everything was decorated in red velour. They didn't have enough money to cover the cost of the room, but the clerk let them slide, accepting what they did have. They smoked weed and took a bubble bath, and she said the sex was normal, nothing weird about it, although Ray at the time, he was only 24, and she said he seemed kind of inexperienced. She did confirm his dislike for wearing underwear, but she kind of liked it. She said that about a month later, 
She had the opportunity to visit the preschool while she was staying at the Bucky family home. She saw Ray, and as he walked into the classroom, the children ran up to him, excited to see him, with their arms reaching out for hugs. In her words on the stand, I was so amazed at the love that was being interchanged. And she again reiterated for the court that there was no possibility that Raymond Bucky is a child molester. Okay, dreamers, I got to the point where I just had to ask my husband about this underwear thing. I said to him, without getting specific or personal, do you think it's unusual for men to have a preference to not wear underwear? He said for the most part, he didn't think it was the usual state of affairs when it comes to men in underwear, just because it's sort of a thing to keep things comfortable, and he can't necessarily confirm it, but he didn't think that it was the most common way to be. That is, without underwear on a daily basis while out and about or working or doing stuff. I asked him if it was possible that there are just men out there who prefer to not wear underwear, and he said yeah, some guys just don't like it. Okay, then I asked about becoming sexually aroused. Does being without underwear cause getting sexually aroused any easier? Or does it have any effect? And he said, not really. It's not about underwear or no underwear. It's other stuff. The underwear doesn't really have an effect on it. And then I asked if not having underwear makes it easier for some reason to become aroused. And he said, no, either you are or you aren't. Okay, so that's all the research I was willing to do on the topic. Feel free to debate this on Facebook if you like. I really have no other source to draw from. I will say this, though. I do think it's kind of odd for Ray to not wear underwear to go to work. Not just with kids, but any job. But that's just my opinion. It really has no bearing on the case. But the prosecution kept trying to make a big deal of it. And if there's some older woman telling him that she thinks it's sexy, that probably reinforced it for him. After 30 months of testimony, the case of the state of California versus Raymond and Peggy Bucky was sent to the jury on November 2nd, 1989. It would take them two and a half months of deliberations before they came back with their verdicts on January 18, 1990. Some of the charges were dropped during the course of the trial. 52 of the 65 charges against the two of them, which included all of the charges against Peggy Buggy, the jury found them not guilty. On the 13 remaining charges against Ray Bucky, the jury found themselves hopelessly deadlocked. Peggy Bucky was free. And for now, Ray was free on his own recognizance. This jury never heard about Judy Johnson, but they did hear testimony from nine children who said they were molested. They looked at over a thousand pieces of evidence in this case, and they heard the testimony of another 143 witnesses. Seven out of the 12 jurors favored acquittal on all charges ultimately hanging on those 13. Five of the jurors said that they didn't think any of the children were molested. Seven of them thought that some of the children had been, but could not decide how the molestations occurred 
who did it or where it happened. The jurors indicated that they had very little confidence in the evidence the prosecution presented, and they felt like the investigation was questionable, that the case was very, very flimsy. One of the biggest mistakes, as they saw it, came very early on when the Manhattan Beach Police Department mailed out those 200 letters telling parents their children may have been molested and that they needed to question the children. The result of that led to nothing but gossip that got way out of control. But dreamers, guess what was the worst part of the whole thing for the jurors? This is too easy, right? Children's Institute International and their so-called interviews were leading, suggestive, and worthless in their words. They said the children's stories were too contradictory. Some of the stuff they said was simply not possible. And as far as the portrait the prosecution was attempting to paint of Ray Bucky as a pedophile based on the fact that he had Playboy and penthouse magazines and that he didn't always wear underwear, it just didn't fly with them. And the jailhouse informant, his testimony was just garbage. And there was weeks and weeks of testimony about the digs under the school for alleged tunnels, and that didn't seem to sway them either. And that's something that we haven't even talked about yet. The material about the tunnels? But I will. Basically, the jury came to the conclusion that, even if the children were molested, the prosecution didn't prove that it was the McMartins that did it. In under two weeks' time from when the verdicts were announced, parents, child protection groups, and members of the community launched a very loud public campaign calling for the retrial of Raymond Bucky. They marched the streets of Manhattan Beach chanting, We Believe the Children. They hit the media airwaves, going to the national news, talk shows, over and over again, repeating the accusations against Ray. Accusations of rampant child molestation and the practicing of satanic rituals. Our old friend Bob Curie was one that led the charge, telling anyone who would listen that they had new evidence and they would certainly convict but he was falling flat in the media, making claims that he couldn't back up. He said that he had police reports, but he couldn't produce any. He said that he had evidence, but he had none. He said his own son made allegations of molestation, but he was never a witness in the case. He is some piece of work in front of the camera, this Bob guy. And the media just let him run amok. They needed their ratings, right? Bowing to the pressure, the district attorney announced Raymond Bucky would be retried on eight of the 13 counts involving three girls who testified at the first trial. A new judge was assigned to the case, and it would be Judge Stanley Weisberg. And if he sounds familiar, he should. He presided over the Menendez brothers' trial and the Rodney King beating trial. And a new prosecution team was assembled. Five of the charges were eventually dropped. Ray Bucky would face trial for eight of the remaining charges left against him. Before we get to that, let's finally talk about these tunnels I've been mentioning numerous times throughout the duration of this series. Many of the children had reported being transported away from the school through underground tunnels that were accessed by secret doorways and trapdoors. If this were true, 
This could very well corroborate the stories of the molestations, which could have happened in the tunnels and out of sight, as could have the animal sacrifices and satanic rituals, too. On April 21, 1990, a few weeks before the second trial against Raymond Bucky was set to begin, several of the McMartin parents took it upon themselves to trespass onto the McMartin preschool property and began digging underneath the northeast section of the building so that they could confirm their children's stories of these tunnels. This would be the second time they started a dig. Remember the first one found nothing? But this time, another one of our old friends, McMartin parent Jackie McGauley, brought in her boyfriend, former FBI agent Ted Gunderson, to join in the dig. He actually crawled into the hole that they dug and collected some so-called artifacts. He was designated as the project coordinator for this digging that would go on for a little over a month. They brought in a professional gold miner, a geologist, and a consulting archaeologist to oversee the excavation. And this band of so-called investigators was consistently leading the media into believing tunnels were discovered under the property of the school, thereby leading the public into believing it as well. The Los Angeles Times began reporting by the end of May of 1990 that the parents had uncovered at least one crudely built tunnel that parents speculated was used to transport children to the backyard of an adjacent apartment building. The South Bay Daily Breeze reported that a subterranean opening may be the entrance to the tunnel system that the children were transported through for purposes of molestations at remote locations. On June 4th, Ted Gunderson went on Larry King Live, along with a former McMartin student and his parents, to discuss the tunnels. The Los Angeles Times reported and confirmed that tunnels were found, but the district attorney, Ira Reiner, was ignoring the claims of the parents. You see, the school was demolished on May 28, 1990, to make way for a three-story office building. And when they did so, the district attorney sent out an investigator to look at the alleged subterranean tunnel system. But it was finally concluded that there was no such proof of tunnels or underground cavities that existed, nor was there any trap doors in the school that ever led to such things. But those working on the site for the parents continued to tell the media, and the media continued reporting that they discovered two hand-dug underground passages that were 45 feet long, or 13.72 meters, 4 feet, or 1.22 meters high, and ranged in width from 2.5 feet to 9 feet, or 1 meter to 2.74 meters wide. And they also claimed to have found thousands of artifacts, but they refused to turn their evidence over to the district attorney because they didn't believe that they had found the tunnels and they didn't trust the DA with their evidence. So where did the origin of these alleged tunnels begin? And how did all of this spread so wildly? It had to start somewhere, but who said it, and when it was said, is really unknown. There was an interview conducted by Children's Institute in February of 1984, where a child may have suggested that there was tunnels at the school. But before that, Bob Curie had contacted this child's parents and told them that their child had been identified as a victim of molestation at the school. At first, the child denied being abused, but his parents took him to Children's Institute anyway, 
despite his denials. At the beginning of this child's interview, he said he could not remember going into the preschool, which seems like an authentic answer, but his therapist, one of McFarlane's cronies, Sandra Krebs, stuck with the script and pressed him for his help with the pretend story that she wanted to tell. She told him that younger children can't talk about sex abuse as well as older children like him because they are not as smart as him and their memories aren't as good as his. She told him that she was playing a detective game with the older boys and their moms and dads and that they were trying to put the pieces of the story together to see if they could figure it all out who all the bad guys were, so they can go get them all. She went on to tell him that the older boys had been talking for the younger ones, and that they all said that they were abused at the school. But this boy remained steadfast. He could not remember anything, and he continued denying anything happened. But Krebs continued with the leading questions until the interview elicited the results the therapist was looking for. He first became confused. Then his answers started to become ambiguous. And then he began to wonder if something may have actually happened to him. Here's a portion of his interview with Sander Krebs. He begins to shift his answers by saying, Like, like, somehow I can't remember. I'm not sure. Um, there was a room I wasn't supposed to go in or something? Question. There was a room you weren't supposed to go in? Answer, yeah, I guess. I can't, I'm making this up, I'm not sure. Yeah, I can see it, I think. And then later on in the interview, after some coaxing, question, boy, you, you are really something. You're amazing, and your memory is just amazing. That's incredible. Are you surprising yourself? Answer, yeah, I, um, I, my dad talked to me and my mom, and my mom and I couldn't remember anything. Question, oh boy, your memory is just incredible, isn't it? Answer, I'm not sure about all of these things. So this boy would later go on to testify at the preliminary hearing of the trial. He told the court his parents helped him by asking him fill-in-the-blank questions about the McMartin preschool case, kind of like a quiz, and he testified that he used his imagination to answer them. He said he watched the news reports on TV where the children were brought to cemeteries. He remembered playing the naked movie star game with Ray and the other teachers in a secret room, and he did so five days a week. But... This particular student only attended the school two days a week, and Ray didn't actually start working there until years after this boy had graduated. The boy testified that he remembered the secret room was the size of a classroom and that it was not underground, but located above ground on the east side of the school. He said they accessed the room through the school, through a trap door that went into one room, then through another door that led to a secret room. Of course, as I've told you, there were no trap doors, and thus, no secret rooms. During this boy's interview with Children's Institute, he said that the room had a window that looked over the yard, but by the time he testified at the preliminary hearing, there was no window in the secret room. 
He said there was a hole in the wall that he passed through and exited to the outside. He also described another secret room that was behind some plants that led out through a fence onto Manhattan Beach Boulevard. He said that they followed their teachers through this hole where tens of thousands of cars drive by every single day and walk to places where they were molested. Oh, and don't forget the satanic stuff. He said that the children were filmed and photographed without their clothes on and all the teachers stood around and watched. Then they were tied up. Then he was taken to a farm where he witnessed a pony being stabbed with a knife and chopped up with a machete. He also remembered drinking rabbit's blood at a church and his teachers dressed in witches' robes and they recited chants and moved around in a circle. Then the teachers took them to a market where everybody was dressed like the devil and they wore masks over their faces. Prior to the preliminary hearing when the boy testified, he had visited a friend of his, a boy and the boy's sister. They too attended the McMartin preschool. He described to them and their mom in details about a devil house, and the other boy told him that he remembered the devil house too, and that there were lions inside. They also both talked about taking a plane ride with Virginia McMartin, the school's owner, along with several other children from the school. This other boy's parents had once been friends with Virginia McMartin, according to the testimony of his father. He had even dressed up as Santa Claus several times for the school. And when he had heard rumors of allegations of sexual abuse at the school, like many of the other parents, he asked his kids questions to find out if they had been abused, but they all denied ever being abused at the school. However, as time passed, the parents began hearing more and more stories through the gossip mill, particularly from parents whose children began talking about abuse after their interviews at Children's Institute. And as these kids' parents continued hearing rumors, that, coupled with watching the news on television about the preschool, they began having no doubt that their children had been molested. The father began telling his kids that Ray had done some terrible things to children at the preschool, and he started attending the neighborhood meetings parents were holding and started listening to all the stories of all the abuse of all the other parents and children. And he also met Key McFarlane at one of these neighborhood meetings. He told Key that some of the children she had previously interviewed were friends of his daughter and that it was his belief that his children were also molested at the school. Remember, his kids had been denying ever having been abused at the school. Key explained to him that the interviews would be purely therapeutic. So with that reassurance, he went ahead and agreed to have her interview his kids. Kay McFarlane interviewed each of the children for approximately two hours each. She again applied her techniques of utilizing leading questions, coercion, and pressure, telling the children things that you know she's famous for, things such as, you may not be smart enough to remember, but if you are, you can help. Following that, she would show the parents some short clips of the video where the children were confirming that they were molested thereby reinforcing the suspicions that the abuse was indeed going on at the school. Never mind the rest of the video where the children repeatedly denied anything ever happened to them. After showing them the snippet of video, Key would tell the parents that they must believe their children, believe in what they've said, and be proud that they were able to come forward with their disclosures. 
parents began constantly talking to their children about the McMartin preschool. Families were gathering around the television in the evenings to watch the evening news reports of the case every single night. The father of the boy and the sister who at first denied being abused spent months asking his children if they had been abused in the ways that they were hearing about on TV. Then two months after his children were taken to Children's Institute, his boy was disclosing that he was threatened with a knife and a gun and taken on a four-hour round-trip plane ride. The whole family went to more than a dozen community meetings where parents and therapists gathered and talked openly with one another about the McMartin Preschool child abuse case. Parents attended RAP sessions led by therapists where they sought support in coping with the psychological impact of what was happening in their community and how it was affecting them and their families. When the initial seven indictments were handed down, families got together to watch these arrests and to celebrate. This man's son came to understand by his parents' own actions and the actions of the parents that had joined forces with him that it was imperative for him to testify at the preliminary hearing. He had to, so the bad people could go to jail. His father joined organizations and lobbying groups that were restricted to McMartin families who had been diagnosed as sexually abused by Children's Institute only. They had guest speakers, and they shared stories of their child's abuse. This boy's father also became a board member of the Children's Civil Rights Fund. With his lobbying efforts, he was able to garner national media exposure. In March of 1984, this father testified that his daughter told him that she was taken to a farm by the McMartin teachers and she saw witches at her school. Children's Institute gave each parent a list of off-campus locations that the children had brought up in their hundreds and hundreds of interviews. The parents were told that these were lists of potential off-campus molestation sites and they wanted the parents to take their children to each of these locations as a part of the ongoing investigation. They wanted the children to point out places, people, and cars that they recognized as having been brought to while they were under the care of the McMartin Preschool. This man's son pointed out four of the locations of having been places he was brought to, and the father wrote those down and turned them over to the district attorney. One of those places? A cliff in Palo Verde, where children were thrown off by their teachers. It wasn't until a year later in March of 1985 when the boy first began talking about underground tunnels. And this was the time he and his father joined with many, many other parents and children on the initial dig for the tunnels at that vacant lot next to the school. When the boy was first asked about the tunnels, he said he didn't know of any. However, later on at the preliminary hearing, he testified about lions being kept underneath a trap door as well as the locations of secret rooms. He said Ray opened the door in the floor and that the lions were in there and that they ran around and roared. And he said Ray told them that if anyone told what happened to them, the lions would jump up and get them. The boy also testified at this hearing that Ray took him to a mortuary where he saw dead bodies lying in coffins. So the existence of the tunnels has long been debated if there were tunnels, then the children could, in at least some part, be believed, and their testimony could have been a little bit more credible, because, let's face it, the children had a whole bunch of fantastical tales. If no tunnels existed, 
then that would just solidify the notion that the children were making up stories as they went along. In a multitude of interviews, children spoke of trapdoors and at least one hole in the floor. These trapdoors purportedly led to secret rooms, either directly through the trapdoor or to tunnels that led to secret rooms. The following is a list of trapdoors described by several different children who were interviewed by district attorney's investigators. 1. A trapdoor under the bathroom sink in the southeast corner of classroom 1, which led to a tunnel and an underground room. 2. A trapdoor in the northwest corner of classroom 1, which led to a long tunnel, which led to a room under the outer play yard. 3. A trapdoor in the northwest corner of classroom 3, that led to a tunnel going east to a garage next door. 4. A trapdoor in the northwest wall of classroom 3. 5. A trapdoor in the middle of the east wall of classroom 3, which led to a tunnel that led to an adjacent property. 6. A trapdoor in the southwest corner of classroom 4, which led to two rooms under the school building. 7. A trapdoor in the northwest corner of classroom 4, which led to a tunnel, which led to a room to the outer play yard. 8. A trapdoor in the front office, under a sink that led to an underground room. 9. A regularly sized door, on the ground, in the outer play yard that led to an underground room. 10. A hole dug by a teacher and a child in the outside play yard, which led to a tunnel, which led to a room half the size of a classroom. 11. A ladder in the outside play yard that led to an underground concrete room. 12. A trap door in the floor of a playhouse in the front play yard that led to a tunnel that headed west to an underground room. Now there are a couple of things that need to be noted here. No two children describe the same trap door, tunnel, or underground room. All entries to the tunnels and rooms were described as being in different places in the school. No one child corroborated the story of another. The floor of the preschool was a solid poured concrete foundation. The district attorney's investigators peeled back all of the flooring tiles and searched in the specific locations described by the children as having a trap door. They looked for anomalies in the concrete places where trapdoors may have once been located, removed and patched with new concrete, and floor tiles laid back down, but no, there were no obvious patches in the concrete anywhere in the foundation of the preschool. Patches in concrete are obvious, and it is impossible to make them invisible. There had never been a single trapdoor anywhere on the site. Even the concrete outside under the playhouse where a trapdoor had been described as having been accessed was also one solid slab of poured concrete with no patches or remnants of where a trapdoor had once been. The searches for these tunnels the children described were extensive. In March of 1985, I mentioned earlier that the McMartin parents had shown up at the school and searched a vacant lot. They dug some random holes a few feet deep where children had described tunnels and subterranean rooms, but no tunnels were discovered, and neither were any rooms. On March 15th, a small army of parents returned with a backhoe and dug up a 60-foot or 18.29-meter trench along the side of the preschool. 
Then they dug six trenches perpendicular to the first one, running about 30 feet or 9.1 meters long, and this was a search for animal remains. Remains of animals supposedly used in satanic ritual sacrifices, along with the ongoing search for tunnels. Dreamers, the soil under the school was very sandy. Any tunnels running beneath the school would have needed to be extensively shored up for support. Otherwise, the ground would cave in. With this extensive dig, tunnels, animal remains, and evidence of shoring up of tunnels would have been easily found based on what the children had said. But nothing was ever found. Nothing. And the archaeologists brought in, hired by the district attorney's office, they scanned the area using a piece of equipment called a terrain conductivity meter, which is able to detect the presence of underground caverns or anomalies in the soil consistency by measuring the electrical conductivity of the earth. And you know what they found with their fancy pants equipment? Two trash dumps. No tunnels, no rooms. In April of 1990, a group of parents dug a hole 15 feet or 4.57 meters deep under the northeast area of the preschool, under classroom three, where children had described tunnels that led to the building next door. Again, no tunnel. It was also during this dig that Ted Gunderson became the coordinator of the excavation project that would last about a month and a half, and he hired that professional gold miner and the consulting archaeologist. They were the ones that got the media all fired up again about the underground secrets beneath the McMartin Preschool, but never once presented any evidence of their findings, accusing the district attorney of ignoring them, and they, therefore, didn't trust him with their evidence. The archaeologists hired by Gunderson handed out a one-page report about their findings on July 27, 1990, and this would be the day the final verdict in the second child abuse case against Raymond Bucky would be read. And his report kind of implied that several tunnels were found. It indicated that the longest tunnel went 45 feet, or 13.72 meters, from the southwest wall, headed east, and 10 feet, or 3 meters along the north wall. But this really doesn't make any sense, because the way the building was situated, there was no southwest wall. His report also said that there was a 9-foot or 2.74-meter chamber that the tunnel led to, but the dimension is vague. It does not indicate if that's height or width. The archaeologist's final report, which was 186 pages long, was pretty confusing, and here are some of its key points. One, it had a picture of a food wrapper that was purportedly photographed in the exact place where it was found before it was removed with the copyright date of 1982 or 1983, insinuating that some access to the underground area must have occurred in that time frame in order for that food wrapper to have ended up there. But the picture of the food wrapper was not taken in the spot that it was found. It was taken after it was supposedly removed from the supposed tunnel that they supposedly discovered it in. 2. Many of the pictures of the artifacts allegedly discovered in the tunnel were not photographed in the place where they said that they were discovered. They were essentially just pictures of trash. 3. 
Pictures of soil variations and anomalies were too dark to tell if there were any variations or anomalies. 4. The report indicated that the confirmation of at least one tunnel and one room was found, but there is no evidence of shoring up of the tunnels, which would have been necessary for these tunnels and rooms to have not caved in. 5. The report said that the ground-penetrating radar detected tunnels, but the firm that conducted the ground-penetrating scan reported no evidence of tunnels found. And 6. The materials found that the report claimed was used to fill up the tunnels was determined to consist of discarded materials that predated the 1940s, meaning that the materials found under the school was placed there before the school was constructed. If you were to believe the children's stories, the latest these tunnels would have been filled in would be 1983, and nothing of the sort was found. It was all from before the 1940s. Besides, in order to fill the tunnels, it would have been a massive undertaking, and if it were done in 1982 and 1983, it would have been noticed. It would have had to have been a major construction event. So, here is our takeaway about these tunnels. None of the children spoke about them prior to the first parent-led dig in 1985. It wasn't until the parents showed up with that backhoe that children began remembering secret rooms beneath the schools. And when they couldn't find tunnels, what did the parents do? They continued asking their children about it. Why did they say there were tunnels when there weren't any? I bet you they kept looking for some answers from their kids and their kids in order to appease their moms and dads ultimately came up with some tall tales and made up locations under the school. And what about the supposed tunnels and rooms that were found? Those were likely trash dumps from decades earlier that had long been filled in, covered up, and built on top of. The trapdoors never existed, and investigators searched extensively for them. And all of this can be attributed to the stories that the kids made up after being subjected to leading, repeated, and directed questioning by interviewers. It goes along the same vein as everything else in this case. They weren't giving the right answers, so they started making up answers to appease the adults pressuring them. Studies have shown that this method of eliciting the answers you are wanting to get out of young children is relatively easy to accomplish. It's easy to pressure a child with repeated, directed questioning until the child gives the quote-unquote correct answer. And this is where they start making stuff up. To please. Because they were praised and rewarded. And then, this is where the inconsistency comes into play as well. Because they can't sort out what it was they said that was the right answer. Because now the truth has been warped. And dreamers, is it obvious to you as it is obvious to me that clearly many components of the testimonies of the children are complete fiction? All of the wild animals, the extensive travels that they claim to have been taken on, the airplanes, the hot air balloons, just the logistics of it all. It would be impossible for the teachers to travel to all these places with all these children churches, car washes, cemeteries, markets, 
airports, farms, and for all of it to go unnoticed, it's just beyond the realm of possibility. But for some reason, the children said it, so it must have come from somewhere, not just a child's vivid imagination, right? The imagination molded by Children's Institute International, with Key McFarlane at the helm. One last thing about the tunnels. There were some real tunnels at the school, and they existed, and the children played on, in, and around them. They were a series of open-ended, brightly painted boxes made out of plywood that were approximately 16 inches wide, 24 inches tall, and 24 inches deep. And the children were allowed to build and arrange these large boxes on the floor of their classrooms, set them up in patterns, and crawl through them. Sounds like a fun, normal, run-of-the-mill preschool thing. The second trial of the case against Ray Bucky commenced on May 7, 1990, and was solely focused on the eight counts of molestation involving three children. The prosecution presented its case in under two weeks, as opposed to the 15 months they took in the first trial, and only called 11 witnesses to the stand. And guess who wasn't amongst the prosecution witnesses? No, not just that jailhouse informant. Key McFarlane. They decided that it would probably be best to keep her out of this mess. A mess which many felt at this point that she helped perpetrate. You think? Oh, but the defense called her. Oh, yeah. They were happy to call her up and put her through the ringer, I'm sure. Judy Johnson may have started this whole thing, but she was obviously unstable. Kay McFarlane was supposed to be the expert in all this. I can't even bear to think of all the children that she damaged in the name of seeking justice. It's infuriating. The jury deliberated from July 9th to July 27th, 1990, and eventually reported to the judge that they were hopelessly deadlocked. The judge declared a mistrial. District Attorney Ira Reiner announced that his office would not seek to retry Raymond Bucky again and dismissed all the charges against him. It was over. The McMartin preschool trial lasted seven years and cost California taxpayers at the time $16 million. It remains the longest and most expensive criminal trial in the history of the United States legal system that resulted in exactly zero convictions. The school was demolished in 1990. The founder of the McMartin Preschool died on December 17, 1995 at the age of 88. Peggy McMartin Bucky died on December 15, 2000 at the age of 74. Raymond Bucky has understandably remained reclusive, although he did do an interview in 2005 with CNN where he credits the hours and hours of videotapes of Key McFarlane and her associates interviewing the children. He said that saved him and his mother from prosecution. And one last thing about Children's Institute International. 
the money that they made. They have been criticized with feeding the media's fascination with the McMartin case. Children's Institute, it's felt by many, helped perpetuate the mass hysteria that consumed Manhattan Beach and the surrounding communities in order to procure grants for their institute, which had been reportedly struggling financially prior to the case. There was a pointed and concentrated campaign to raise $250,000 for the institute through public donations that was launched on April 12, 1984. The campaign hit the media. A full-page ad was printed in the local Manhattan Beach newspaper imploring its citizens to rise up and take action on behalf of sexually abused children. The ad read, quote, The future of this community is the future of its children, unquote. The advertisement went on to explain that it takes 11 hours to interview each child and that Children's Institute was overwhelmed by the large influx of children that still needed to be interviewed. The ad said that 90% of the 30 children that had already been interviewed at that point had been sexually abused, which added up so far to 400 criminal counts, and that there were more than 350 more potential victims who must wait weeks in suspense that needed to be interviewed. We can't afford to keep them waiting, the ad said. We need to raise money to pay for additional interviewers, training personnel, buying equipment, and ongoing care. We need to raise the hopes of this community today, not tomorrow. By that summer, the campaign had only raised a fraction of what they were seeking, about $30,000. Kay McFarlane on April 26, 1984, made a nationally televised appeal to Congress for federal funds, and it went a little something like this. I believe we are dealing with no less than conspiracies in these preschool cases, organized operations of child predators. Preschools in this country, in some instances, have become a ruse for larger, unthinkable networks of crimes against children. If pornography and prostitution are involved, which is sometimes the case, those networks may have greater financial, legal, and community resources than any of the agencies trying to uncover them. In the Manhattan Beach case, I was initially asked to interview five children by the district attorney's office at a time when I was trying to not interview children, but to write grant proposals to keep my center funded. So I reluctantly agreed to see the children. That was about 360 children ago. In three months, we've had a list of 300 hysterical families. We have, in most communities, plans for dealing with fires, floods. California has earthquake descriptions in all their phone books. The federal government is even developing plans for emergency responses to nuclear war. We need a community disaster model to combat this kind of thing, the McMartin case. If you have a system that is trained and specialized to deal with this, you may be, as we have been able to get in there early, do component and thorough evaluations before formal arrests are made, before the media ruin the careers and reputations of people in schools. And it worked. Key's plea to Congress paid off. The IRS reports filed by Children's Institute indicated that government grants increased from a half million dollars in 1982 and 1983 to millions of dollars annually in the years that followed. 
The total for government and private individual and private foundation grants increased from one million eight hundred and sixty six thousand sixty six dollars in nineteen eighty three to three million two hundred and sixty eight thousand fifty six dollars in nineteen eighty five. In the last three years of the seven years of the McMartin saga, Children's Institute received approximately eleven million dollars in government grants. Their total for all contributions to the Institute from 1987 to 1990 was $15,356,797. Lyle Rubin, if you ask her, would say that the system worked well for the Buckies and that they were lucky. What is it about that statement that's so annoying? Is it the fact that we can't even begin to wrap our minds around the magnitude of the damage this case has caused? With these stories of child sex abuse, animals being killed and mutilated, corpses being dug up and chopped to pieces, the drinking of blood, satanic rituals, even the sacrifice of a live baby via decapitation in a church. This is what they prosecuted. And in the end, it would be all for naught. Years in court, millions of dollars spent, lives destroyed, countless lives not just in this case against McMartin, but this panic had a ripple effect. Teachers in schools across the country grew afraid of touching or hugging children, something that kids actually need because they were afraid they might be charged with child abuse. Many daycare centers were forced out of business because insurance companies began to drastically raise their rates. And the publicity that encompassed the McMartin investigation caused an onslaught of charges against preschool teachers, many of them reminiscent of the McMartin case, meaning they were charges without any basis. One that I quickly want to tell you about is the Kelly Michaels case out of the state of New Jersey. Kelly worked at a daycare there. On April 30th, 1985, a four-year-old boy a student of Kelly's at the We Care Day Nursery said when a nurse took his rectal temperature, that's what my teacher does to me at nap time. When he was questioned as to what he meant, he said, her takes my temperature. His comment spawned a criminal investigation that would result in Kelly being made to face charges on 131 counts of sexual abuse against 20 children. She was accused of raping and assaulting her three- to five-year-old students with knives, spoons, and Legos. Prosecutors also accused her of licking peanut butter off the children's genitals, that she played the piano naked, and she forced the children to drink her urine. And apparently, all of this abuse went unnoticed by everyone at the school. Other teachers, parents, and administrators for the seven-month period that Kelly was employed there. In 1988, Kelly, 26 years old at the time, was convicted of 115 counts of abuse and sentenced to 47 years in prison. Dreamers, Kelly was innocent. None of this abuse happened. The reason she was convicted was because the mantra, believe the children, became the crux of the prosecution's case. That was their motto. The New Jersey Division of Youth and Family Services investigators were convinced that Kelly was guilty. 
and they were hell-bent on uncovering her dastardly deeds. Most of the children in the beginning said that nothing happened, that Miss Kelly didn't do anything to them. Investigators called this their denial phase. They kept pushing. They played their McFarlane cards, anatomical dolls, telling them that other kids told them about what happened at the school, and telling them that Kelly was in jail. They were being praised for helping, and the children, as I had said earlier in the series, they wanted to please. And before long, they were beginning to change their answers after a series of leading and suggestive questions. Eventually, the children were telling the investigators exactly what they wanted to hear. The blame for this travesty of justice rests largely on investigators and prosecutors. Believe the children became the motto for the entire trial, and a move straight out of the Manhattan Beach Police Department's playbook, the parents of the We Care Day Nursery were given a so-called symptoms chart and were asked to report any behaviors that might be an indicator of sexual abuse. Things like bedwetting or nightmares. And of course, the parents were finding symptoms in their children. Other teachers at the school Teachers who knew Kelly was innocent because of fear, intimidation, and the hysteria surrounding the case. Those who should have come forward to support and defend Kelly opted not to. They were afraid if they openly expressed support for her that they would have charges filed against them as well. There was an article written about Kelly's case in Harper's Magazine by Dorothy Rabinowitz. And she had this to say about this particular case. We as a society, every 50 years or so, are afflicted by some paroxysm of virtue, an orgy of self-cleansing through which evil of one kind or another is cast out. From the witch hunts of Salem to the communist hunts of the McCarthy era to the current shrill fixation on child abuse, There runs a common thread of moral hysteria. After the McCarthy era, people would ask, but how could it have happened? How could the presumption of innocence have been abandoned wholesale? How did large and powerful institutions acquiesce as congressional investigators ran roughshod over civil liberties? All in the name of a war on communists. How was it possible to believe that subversives lurked behind every library door, in every radio station, that every two-bit actor who had belonged to the wrong political organization posed a threat to national security. Years from now, people doubtlessly ask the same question about our present era, a time when the most improbable charges of abuse find believers. When is it enough only to be accused by anonymous sources? to be hauled off by investigators at a time when the hunt for child abusers has become a national pathology. In March of 1993, after Kelly had spent five years in prison, her appeal was successful and she was released. The New Jersey Supreme Court overturned the lower court's decision, 
stating that the interviews of the children were highly improper and utilized coercive and unduly suggestive methods. The panel also ruled that Kelly had been denied a fair trial because the prosecution relied on testimony that should have been excluded because it improperly used an expert's theory called the Child Sexual Abuse Accommodation Syndrome to establish guilt. Three months later, the state Supreme Court refused to hear the prosecutor's appeal of their decision to overturn the conviction. And in December of 1994, they dropped their attempts to retry Kelly. They said that there were just too many obstacles to overcome in order to win a conviction in a retrial. Specifically, the Supreme Court stated that if the state of New Jersey decided to re-prosecute Kelly Michaels, that they must produce, quote, clear and convincing evidence that statements and testimony elicited by the improper interview techniques are reliable enough to warrant admission. They didn't outright demand that the prosecutor drop the case, but they did make it clear that the testimony of the kids would not hold up. Lyle Rubin called it luck for the Buckies. But I would submit to you, dreamers, that it was much more than luck that caused the prosecution's case to fall flat. It is my strong conviction that the evidence was flimsy, at best, from the very beginning. The prosecution brought about way too many charges against the defendants, and it was too much to have happened to have been plausible. The techniques utilized to garner statements and accusations from the children were questionable. There were political pressures and a mass hysteria that was perpetuated by the media who just threw everything they could out there to see if anything would stick. Many were outraged at the verdicts, convinced that the Buckies were guilty as charged. Others, like myself, feel like the McMartin family was subjected to a momentous miscarriage of justice. The years in jail before being able to raise enough bail money, the loss of the family business, and ultimately, the complete destruction of their lives. This case was an embarrassment to the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, the prosecutors, as well as the media. Eventually, the media would point the finger at the DA and the Manhattan Beach Police Department for allowing this case to run amok the way that it did. A reporter for the Los Angeles Times would later assert that they themselves were biased in favor of the prosecution and failed to look any deeper into the charges against the employees of the McMartin Preschool. And then there was also the issue with Key McFarlane and KABC reporter Wayne Satz having been linked romantically. I told you guys about that. Well, there's more. Come to find Prosecutor Lyle Rubin would become engaged to and get married to David Rosenzweig. Who is this guy, you ask? None other than the Metropolitan Reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Yep. Key people involved in the prosecution in this case were romantically involved with key individuals associated with one of the largest television networks and one of the largest newspaper publications in the country. And there's no conflict of interest? Sure. This case, from its inception, was tainted, start to finish, 
from the accusations of one troubled Judy Johnson, the letters sent to the parents, the panic that those letters ignited, the referrals to Children's Institute and Key McFarlane, the refusal to accept the children's denials that they were molested, the hundreds of children who were coerced into changing their stories to say things that were simply outlandish, molestations, naked games, posing for nude pictures, travels to remote locations, animal sacrifices, hidden tunnels under the school, all of it coaxed out of them with leading questions, with little to no corroborating evidence. The arrest of seven McMartin employees and administrators, hundreds and hundreds of unfounded charges, doctors reporting that all the children exhibited signs of abuse, the assertion that production of images of child abuse was the motivation for the molestation, to the FBI and Interpol searching the world for evidence of pornography and finding none, to extensive archaeological digs that turned up nothing, no animal bones, no tunnels, nothing. The prosecution pushing forward with the case despite no evidence outside of made-up stories they used to invent a case. And all of that topped off with the alignment of the misguided fanaticism of six individuals who came together to Mickey Mouse this case. Judy Johnson, the mom with the mental illness who died of alcoholism-related health issues. Jane Hogue, the detective who first took the complaint and ran with it. Key McFarlane, the social worker who bent the stories and lives of hundreds of children in order to make the case for child abuse and the case for her pocketbook. Robert Philobosian, the district attorney when the case broke, who was in the midst of a losing battle to win re-election to Ira Reiner. Wayne Satz, the reporter who irresponsibly broke the news in a sensationalistic way. And Lyle Rubin, who sunk her teeth into this case like a rabid dog and never let go. Even some 30 years later, she continues to maintain that Ray Bucky managed to get away with rampant sexual abuse of young children. All of these people were motivated by each of their own personal agendas. They dug their heels in and refused to look at this case as anything but what it truly was, a farce. They were all blinded by their ambitions and their zealousness. And in doing so, they pushed aside their ability to reason and their ability to see common sense. And it was costly, probably one of the greatest travesties of justice. And we've seen a lot since. But this case stands alone in a class of its own. On October 30th, 2005, a formal letter of apology from a former McMartin student named Kyle was published in the Los Angeles Times. It read as follows. My mother divorced my father when I was two, and she met my stepfather, who was a police officer in Manhattan Beach. They had five children after me. In addition, my stepfather had three older children. In the combined family, I'm the only one of the nine children he didn't father. I always remember wanting him to love me, 
I always tried excessively hard to please him. I would do anything for him. My stepbrothers and stepsisters and half-brother and half-sister went to McMartin. So did I. I only remember being happy there. I never had any bad feelings about the school. No bad auras, no bad vibes or anything. Even to this day, talking about it or seeing pictures or artwork that I did at McMartin never brings back any bad feelings. All my memories are positive. The thing I remember about the case was how it took over the whole city and consumed our whole family. My parents would ask questions. Did the teachers ever do things to you? They talked about Ray Bucky, whom I've never met. I don't even have any recollections of him being at the school when I was going there. The first time I went to Children's Institute International, now known as Children's Institute Incorporated, a respected century-old Los Angeles County child welfare organization where approximately 400 former McMartin children were interviewed and given genital exams, and where many were diagnosed as victims of abuse. We drove there, our whole family. I remember waiting for hours while my brothers and sisters were being interviewed. I don't remember how many days it was or if it was just one day, but my memory tells me it was weeks because it seemed so long. It was an ordeal. I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to get out of this unless I tell them what they want to hear. We were examined by a doctor. I took off all my clothes and laid down on the table. He checked my butt and my penis. There was a room with lots of toys and stuffed animals and dolls. The dolls were pasty white and had hair where their private parts were. They wanted us to take off their clothes. It was just really weird. I remember them asking extremely uncomfortable questions about whether Ray had touched me and about all the other teachers and what they did. And I remember telling them that nothing happened to me. I remember them almost giggling and laughing, saying, oh, we know these things happen to you. Why don't you just go ahead and tell us? Use the dolls if you're scared. Anytime I would give them an answer that they didn't like, they would ask again and encourage me to give them the answer that they were looking for. It was really obvious what they wanted. I know the types of language they used on me. Things like I was smart or I could help the other kids who were scared. I felt uncomfortable and a little ashamed that I was being dishonest. But at the same time, being the type of person that I was, whatever my parents wanted me to do, I would do. And I thought they wanted me to help protect my little brother and sister who went to McMartin. Later, my parents asked if the teachers took pictures and played games with us games like Naked Movie Star. I remember my mom asking me. She would ask if they sang the song, and I didn't know what she was talking about, so she would sing something like, 
who you are, you're a naked movie star. I'm pretty sure that's the first time I ever heard that from my mom. She asked me a hundred times, and I probably said, yeah, I played that game. My parents were very encouraging when I said that things happened. It was almost like saying things happened was going to help get these people in jail and stop them from doing what they were trying to do to kids. Also, there were so many kids saying all these things happened that you didn't want to be the one who said nothing happened. You wouldn't be believed if you said that. I remember feeling like they didn't just pick anybody. They picked me because I had a good memory of what they wanted and they could rely on me to do a good job. I don't think they thought I was telling the truth, just that I was telling the same stories consistently, doing what needed to be done to get these teachers found guilty. I felt special and important. It always seemed like I was thinking. I would listen to what my parents would say if they were talking or to what someone else would say if we were being questioned at the police station or anywhere, and I would repeat things. Or if it wasn't a story that I had heard, I would think of something in my head. I would try to think of the worst thing possibly that could be harmful to a child. I remember once I said that if you had a cut, instead of putting a band-aid on it, the McMartin teachers would put on dirt and then they put the band-aid over the dirt. There was just something in my head that sounded bad. I just thought of it and told the investigators. I think I got the satanic details by picturing our church. We went to American Martyrs, which was a huge Catholic church. Every Sunday we had to go to Mass, and it would last an hour, hour and a half. None of us wanted to go. It was kicking and screaming all the way there. Sitting, standing, sitting, standing. What I would do is picture the altar, the pews, the stained glass windows. And if the investigator said, describe an altar, I would describe the one in our church. Or instead of, there was a priest in a green suit, someone who was real, I would say, a man dressed in red as a cult member. From going to church, you know that God is good and the devil is bad and has horns and is about evil and red and blood. I would just throw a twist in there with Satan and devil worshiping. I remember going in our van with all of my brothers and sisters and driving to airports and houses and being asked if I had been abused in these places. I remember telling people that the McMartin teachers took us to Harry's Meat Market and describing what I thought the meat market was like. I had never been there before, and I was fairly certain that I was going to get in trouble for what I was saying because it probably was not accurate. I imagined someone would say, they don't have that kind of freezer in there. And then they'd say that, but then someone would say, well, they could have changed it. It was like anything and everything I said was believed. 
The lawyers had all my stories written down and knew exactly what I had said before. So I knew I would have to say those exact things again and not have anything different. Otherwise, they would know I was lying. I put a lot of pressure on myself. At night, in bed, I would think hard about the things I had said in the past and try to repeat the things I knew I had said before. I remember describing going to an airport and Ray taking us somewhere on an airplane. And then I realized the parents would have to know that the kids were gone from the school. I felt like I'd screwed up and my lie had been caught and I was busted. I was so upset with myself. I remember breaking down and crying. I felt like everyone knew I was lying. But my parents said, you're doing fine, don't worry, and that everyone was saying how proud they were of me. Just don't worry. I'm not saying that nothing happened to anyone else at the McMartin Preschool. I can't say that. I can only speak for myself. Maybe some things did happen. Maybe some kids made up stories about things that didn't really happen and eventually started believing that they were telling the truth. Maybe some got scared that the teachers would get their families because they were lying. But I never forgot that I was lying. My stepdad was a police officer who had guns in the house. I remember when all of this was coming down, he was put on a leave of absence from work because he was being investigated for supposedly threatening the McMartin family. He was cleared of that accusation. Apparently it wasn't true. But being only nine years old at the time, I thought my dad was saying he would kill the McMartins. So in my mind, I figured no one from the school was going to dare mess with him because he would have hurt them first. That made me feel secure. It could be a reason. I never mixed up reality and fantasy, and I always knew that I was lying. But the lying really bothered me. One particular night stands out in my mind. I was maybe 10 years old, and I tried to tell my mom nothing happened. I laid on the bed crying hysterically. I wanted to get it off my chest, to tell her the truth. My mother kept asking me to please tell her what was the matter. I said that she would never believe me. She persisted. I promise, I'll believe you. I love you so much. Tell me what's bothering you. This went on for a long time. I told her she wouldn't believe me, and she kept assuring me that she would. I remember finally telling her, nothing happened. Nothing ever happened to me at the preschool. She didn't believe me. We had a highly dysfunctional family. We argued and fought all the time. My mother has always blamed anything negative on the idea that we went to that preschool and we were molested. To this day, she believes these things went on. 
because if they didn't, how could she explain all the family's problems? To this day, I cannot open up to her about my personal problems. She's always asking me why I never do. That one night skewed our relationship. Once the case was over, it was just over and in the past. The defendants were set free and that was it. The kids' parents never asked, why were they innocent? Why were they unable to find evidence to convict these people? My family has not seen the movies or read the books questioning the prosecution. It's like skeletons in a closet that you just don't want to take back out. I'm the only one who ever brings up the topic and who admits nothing ever happened to me. I've said I've lied about everything and I've never gotten a real response from my mother or stepfather. It seems really strange seeing their reaction to the fact that nothing happened to me. If I had gone my whole life thinking my child was molested, I would be elated to find out that he or she wasn't. I'd like to think learning that your child was not molested would supersede anything. After all, all you have is your next day. It would be a shame to live the rest of your life thinking molestation had happened when you could think that it didn't. McMartin is something negative in my life and I'm trying to make it positive. I've got two little kids that I love dearly. They've changed the priorities in my life. My goal is to raise them as best I can and try to lead by example. I want to be totally honest with them and say, this is something that happened to me. I did something dishonest. Then at some point, I was able to be honest about it. I want my children to be able to come and talk to me like I wish I could have with my parents. I am a supermarket manager, and the thing I like best about my job is the interactions I get to have with the customers and their kids. I love talking to them and listening to them. I've been told I would be perfect for opening a child's daycare. That's very ironic. I would love to look up the defendants from the McMartin Preschool and tell them, I'm sorry. Kyle had some help in his attempt to get in touch with the remaining McMartins that were still alive. As I told you, Virginia and Peggy had already passed away by the time he published his letter. But the others, Ray, his sister Peggy Ann, as well as accused teacher, Babette Spittler, turned down the offer to meet with Kyle. They have vehemently maintained their innocence from day one, and they don't need apologies from former students who were children at the time. They didn't know any better. They would rather hear apologies from the police, social workers, therapists, prosecutors, doctors, and the parents who fanned the flames of this case. I understand. A part of me kind of wished that they had, 
at least acknowledged and accepted Kyle's apology. The man has obviously struggled with the ordeal for decades and needed to somehow make amends for it. He may not have needed to because he was a child put under a lot of pressure to say things that weren't true, but it feels like he needed to be told that it was okay. Kyle was interviewed by Children's Institute therapist on March 10, 1984. This is a portion of his interview transcript. Kyle starts off by saying, Mr. Ray didn't work there when I was there. Question. What do you mean? Answer. Yeah, he didn't go there. Question. A long time ago, some kids said that there were some secrets from that school, some crummy things that happened. And we told them about our secret machine right here and our puppets who are real smart guys like Mr. Snake. Here's Pac-Man. And we told them how smart our puppets were and how they help kids talk about some stuff sometimes. And we've been playing detective. Kyle nodded his head, but he didn't say anything. Can we talk about those secrets now, Pac-Man? And can you help Kyle? Everybody's talking about it now. And you know what? We are going to tell you one of our special secrets because we can have a secret that we've been telling all the kids. And this one, you're going to like this one, Pac-Man, because Kyle's dad is the policeman. And we know that sometimes Mr. Ray was at that school and he wasn't a teacher then, but we know that he was at the school. Do you remember that, Pac-Man? Answer. He didn't work there, but I know that another child was there. It happened. Question. Well, you know what? We know that even before Kyle was there, Ray was there, and we know that he was there when Kyle was there, too. Answer. They said something on TV about it, that he did something. Question. We know all about Mr. Ray, that sitting outside Mr. Ray's house is a special policeman in a regular car. He doesn't wear a uniform or anything like that, but he sits in a regular-looking car outside Mr. Ray's house. He watches all the time, and if Mr. Ray goes out of his house, then the secret policeman follows him. He'll be right behind him and he won't even have to know he's there. Do you think that's a good idea, Pac-Man? Answer, uh-huh. Question. We got a mountain of dolls here. Here's a little girl. It's easy to tell she's a girl. She has a bow, and her vagina is underneath. Kids throw them and beat them up and everything. You should have seen another child beating them up. Boy, we had a good time beating up the Mr. Ray doll. And let's see. I wonder, Pac-Man, if you remember any of the games that you used to play at the school? Answer. Yeah. Question. Yeah, like which ones do you remember? Answer. 
like Mr. Ray, he would, he would get his camera and then he, they, they would, he would take their pants off and, and then they would go into their pool and they, they would take pictures. Question. Your mom and dad already know that game because they heard it from the other kids' moms and dads. Did any other teachers play Pac-Man? Answer, yeah, they took pictures too. Question, oh boy, gee, we're really figuring this out, huh? What a big help you are. My goodness. We all know that hundreds of children were put through the same exact thing that Kyle was put through. There are so many stories out there that would sound just like this. And to hear him open up about how exactly he was made to evolve from a child who said nothing happened to him at the school. A child who said Ray Bucky didn't even work there when he was in attendance. Into a child who would eventually claim that he was abused, taken to a satanic church, and taken to a meat market. How sad is it to see how tormented he was over the years? How his relationship with his mother became fractured because she didn't believe him when he said that he wasn't a victim. That she would choose to believe that he was molested rather than not. And that he carried this with him all the way into adulthood, into parenthood. To have to live the life of a victim, literally of nothing. Nothing happened to this boy, and it anguished him for decades. This boy, and a hundred times over, this is only one child's story. How many others went on living this lie? And how about the ones who have lived the past 35 years believing that they were sexually abused and actually weren't? At least not by anybody associated with the McMartin Preschool. So many lives devastated. And truly, the ones who were allowed to victimize these children and their families were the very ones who orchestrated and fabricated this entire ordeal and made millions and millions of dollars in the process. And that, dreamers, brings this three-part series to a close, finally. We went through a great deal of horrendous, violent, sexually explicit acts that I rarely am able to bring myself to talk about. But when all is said and done, we have to understand that the criminal charges brought about in this case were complete fiction. I don't think any of us would be as enthralled or fascinated with the story if it were true. I am usually open-minded about controversial cases. I can respect an opinion that goes against my own, but I just don't think I can do that this time. There continues to be a community of people who believe in the guilt of the McMartin teachers. They believe in the children. 
and they continue to do so to this day. And they're just not going to see it any other way. But for those of us out there who enjoy true crime, and we are familiar with questionable cases and miscarriages of justice, I don't think any of us believes in the guilt of those who stood trial in this case. And with all due respect, if you're listening to this, and you believe the children were molested and subjected to satanic rituals within the confines of the McMartin Preschool and their purported remote locations, I'm going to question your logic, and I'm probably going to judge you, but I'll be nice about it. And if you would like to express your opinions, feel free to do so on the discussion page on Facebook. Request to join and feel free to post, but all I ask is that you be respectful of everyone. You can also follow California Dreaming on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. If you would like to help support the show, there are a number of ways that you can do that. California Dreaming has a Patreon, and for as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to the bonus content on there. California Dreaming also has a PayPal. If you'd like to make a one-off donation, the email there is californiapod at yahoo.com. You can also visit the merchandise store on TeePublic. We have t-shirts, tote bags, coffee mugs, all that can be found in the show notes or visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com and click on the store link. You can also help the show by rating and reviewing it on iTunes, on Facebook, and on podchaser.com. Rating the show on all of those platforms helps give California Dreaming more visibility. California Dreaming is presented to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Have you had a chance to visit our newly redesigned website? We're really proud of it, and it is super nice. You can find me and all of the other shows that we have partnered with in the network, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, 4-1-Owned, Film Roast, Vox Arcana, and The Podience which is a show geared towards podcast hosts and aspiring hosts, giving you all the ins and outs of the podcasting world. Visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you so much for listening to this three-part series, The Tale of the McMartin Preschool. Yay, we're done. Until next time, sweet dreams. Obscure cases, lesser-known crimes, horrific incidents hardly if ever covered before. Uncovering and exposing all of these is the modus operandi of what every of Myth and Mercy podcast episode aims to do. My name is Cassandra, and I invite you to check us out on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms. Check out our website at ofmythandmercy.com. Listen in and remember the question that Charles Bukowski asked. Mercy, I ask? Mercy? What does the human race know about mercy? Hey guys, do you like mysteries and urban legends? 
Do you like creepy stories and unsolved true crime? Then join us every Tuesday and Saturday at Mysteries and Urban Legends and get to the bottom of weird urban legends and spooky mysteries. 